Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Chapman, and if there's one thing I believe, it's that you're capable of making your dreams a reality and that the world needs you to be living out your purpose. One thing I love is to chat with people doing impactful work in hopes that we can all learn something from the conversation. Not to mention, we get to apply all of that wisdom to our own journey. Each week, you will hear just that here at the Radiant Podcast. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Radiant Podcast. This week, I am so excited to introduce you to my new friend, Ashley Abercrombie. You guys are going to want to write that name down because she is fantastic and you're going to want to keep up with her. We had an amazing conversation and really got to get into the nitty gritty of social justice and both of our passions for that. She really is a change maker in this world and she pastors a church alongside her husband in Manhattan. You're going to love Ashley as much as I did and I can't wait for you guys to get to hear a little more of her story. Hey, Ashley. Hi, Kelsey. I am so glad to have you on the Radiant Podcast. I have heard about you for so long from my friend Tiffany, who's also been on the Radiant Podcast. So I'm so glad you're here with me today. I would love for you to start by just introducing yourself to our listeners and sharing your story and how you got to where you are and what you're doing today. Okay, awesome. Well, first of all, I just want to say it's such an honor to be on here with you and your amazing tribe. So thank you for having me. Thanks for joining well, I'm actually Abercrombie and, you know, I grew up in the South in a really tiny little small town, like population 14,000 people. I mean, tiny. <laughs> and I loved that. And <laughs> I, I had such a great community and safe community, lots of different types of people and different backgrounds, all kinds of different things like that. And then I would say the only downside to living in such a small town is that people know everything about you without really knowing you at all. <laughs> And because of that, I feel like I learned to wear a mask and I learned to pretend and perform. And I felt like, you know, I could kind of ebb and flow in every scenario in order to sort of please people. So when I left my beautiful hometown to go to college, I left and went to a university that was 40,000 people on the campus alone. So you can imagine I was completely overwhelmed. Um, 300 people in our classrooms, just big, huge, huge. And it totally started to fall apart. I think that all the years of wearing a mask, the pretending, the performing got to me and I buckled underneath the pressure of being out on my own by myself, trying to figure out life. Um, When you don't have anybody to please and no one knows you, that whole facade sort of starts to fall apart. And I fell into, I guess, fell into is the wrong terminology. I made some choices (laughs) and ended up with drugs, alcohol, with an eating disorder, struggling with all kinds of different issues during my college years. And it was a really, really difficult time in my life. And I don't know if anybody's ever felt like this, but when you just want to pack up all your stuff and leave it all behind and hopefully start new. And so that's exactly what I did. I packed up everything in my small hometown and moved out to Los Angeles, um, 3000 miles away and got there. The first couple of weeks were amazing. And then of course, everywhere you go, there you are unfortunately. (laughs) And so I had to deal with myself and start to face some of the issues from my past. Um, I was able to get into a beautiful faith community. I I became part of a wait staff as a waitress and five people on that staff went to a church that I then became a part of for the next 15 years. And they were not crazy Christians. And so because of that, I thought, well, well, they're not judgmental, even though I was drinking, partying, doing drugs, doing my thing, but they weren't judging me. They were totally loving me. They would take me out to dinners, take me out for coffee. And they actually never even invited me to their church. But because they were so kind, 
I had a moment with them where I was like, man, can I come visit your church? Because I've never met Christians who are so kind and people who are so good. What is that about you? I ended up going to their church and becoming a part of that faith community for 15 years. Wow. Yeah. And through that process, just discovered a lot of healing. I went on a recovery journey. I'm now um, 15 years sober from eating disorders, drugs, alcohol. So I've got 15 years sobriety under my belt. Wow. Yeah, but just really learned how to be in community, how to take my mask off for the first time and just share with people. Like I just was under that lie that, you know, if that you're alone in your pain, that you're the only one who has issues, problems and pain. And what I learned by sharing and taking my mask off with safe people is I learned that everybody has issues, problems and pain, that I was not alone in mine. And so I was able to begin to cultivate a very rich, meaningful community where I found a lot of healing and faced a lot of the issues of my past and was able to overcome addictions. And through that process, discovered a leadership gift on my life and was able to kind of start a journey in ministry. I started leading small groups for women called Breaking the Silence. And that was just to help women who had come from backgrounds like mine have a safe place to share their story, a safe place to grow, a safe place to journey through the, the rough patches and the roller coaster of recovery. And so I started out with just small women's groups and then ended up leading different ministries, overseeing lots of different things, and then eventually becoming a pastor. And at that faith community, I also met many of the friends who are still in my life today and met my husband there. And just a couple of years ago, we made the decision to move to Manhattan, New York City, which is where we've lived for the last two years. And we pastor at Liberty Church, which is in downtown Manhattan. And we just both have a real burden for justice and um, for people and, and love doing what we get to do together with our two little boys in Manhattan. So that's wow. the short version. <laughs> wow, I have so many questions. So first, I would love for you to tell me about kind of the heart behind Breaking the Silence. I was immediately, you know, drawn in just to the title. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would love to share more about that because I think that the shame of silence is what really, you know, kept me bound up. I really genuinely thought that you just have to bury things that you go through. You know, um, one of the things I went through when I was in college was I was raped on campus by a guy that I knew. And I literally got up the next morning and went to work as if nothing had happened. And I, you know, wearing a mask helps you disassociate because you know how to play the role, how to get up and play the part, how to enter different spaces and sort of be what you need to be and then go home. And for me, what that looked like was more self-harm in order to cope because I didn't have any healthy relationships in my life at the time uh, that I was being honest in. I had healthy people around me, but I didn't know how to be honest with them. And so breaking the silence really came out of exactly that phrase that that came to my heart when I was going through my recovery journey. I was like, man, if I could just break this silence, if I could just open my mouth and share what I've gone through. And one of the most life-changing moments for me is that I was in a small group and I know that you're tribe and you don't know me yet, but I am not the type of girl who does like girls night outs and does like movie nights and, you know, spa <laughs> nights. And that's just so not my vibe, you know, but I ended up helping lead this group called girls night out. And here I am struggling with an eating disorder, struggling with drugs and alcohol. And I'm thinking to myself, like, everybody here is perfect. We're getting together for movies and spa nights. Like, this is out of control. And we had let the small group go a little bit late. And there was one of our gals, one of our friends who took the bus home every night. And because it was close to 11 o'clock, I was like, hey, I'll just drive you home. Come get in my car. Ended up driving her to downtown Los Angeles. 
um, to a place, an area called Skid Row. And I thought, man, this is not exactly the place for a woman to be at 11 o'clock at night. So we pulled up and she said, hey, you can just let me out here. And I said, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk you to your door. And she was like, no, please. And there was just something in her um, that made me go, okay, go ahead. And then about an hour later, she called me and said, I don't know if you figured this out yet, Ashley, but I'm homeless. And it was such a powerful moment for me because I'm like, here I am struggling completely with addiction. I'm showing up, putting on this perma smile on my face, pretending like I'm okay. And then so is this woman. She, we've created this group where she's had to come and feel like she can't really be herself, that she can't really share with us where she is on her journey. And so because of that, just began to change. We changed the group name to Breaking the Silence because I was like, enough. And sure enough, as we began to share with one another, we realized, yes, people were struggling. They had very real issues that needed to be dealt with, and they needed community to come around them and support as they went on their recovery journey. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So what are some of the testimonies that came out of the group over the years? I mean, that's incredible because it goes from one night we're doing spa night to the next doing real nitty-gritty life together. Yes. Well, I think we learned a lot in those first years, especially. Um, I'm also part of a group uh, called Treasures. It's a nonprofit that one of my best friends started 15 years ago. Her name's Harmony Dusgrillo, and she actually has a background of working in the sex industry. And so she started that um, outreach initially just to go into strip clubs in Los Angeles to tell women that they're loved, valued, and purpose. So we take a little gift bag in. And for the women to be able to, to know that they have value. And if they ever wanted to reach out and talk to somebody or connect with them, they could. And so she was starting her nonprofit at the same time I was starting my group. So when we met one another, it was like one of those, you know, sister purpose moments where you realize like, man, I didn't know where the women were going to come from for the group. And she didn't know where she was going to send the women. So it was a beautiful partnership from the very beginning. So we had lots of women who worked in the sex industry come through that group. We had women who were struggling with eating disorders. We had women struggling with backgrounds of of shame and sexual abuse and all kinds of different issues. And then we also just had women who had never really been through anything, you know, on paper. They had never experienced any real trauma, but just struggled with depression, struggled with real life issues, you know, struggling in their purpose, not sure how to move forward. And so through that process, we were all able to encourage one another and of course get help where real help was needed. You know, I'm a big fan of therapy. I'm a big fan of support groups. I'm a big fan of doing whatever you need to do to get whole. And so just supporting women in their journey, um, suspending our judgment of one another so that we could journey together and allow God to heal us and allow ourselves to make choices that would, would help us move forward in wholeness. Wow. So one thing that is in your bio that I loved, that's, it, it says you're too old and too annoyed to ever put that mask on. I love that. Yeah. What was the transition <laughs> like of living, you know, going from wearing a mask, going from hiding it all or covering it all up and just, I'm fine, acting fine, to starting to live out of a place of freedom and transparency, even when it's hard? Because I think any of our listeners can relate to that at some point of, okay, like how do I show up as truly me? And what if that leads to rejection? What if that costs me connection? Like what does that look like practically for someone who maybe is navigating that 
on either a larger scale or a smaller scale or a similar scale at any give any of our listeners? Well, the process for me was messy and it was not easy. It was very hard and difficult. I, I had mastered the extremes. And I think most of us who can relate to wearing a mask or pretending and performing can understand those extreme, extremes. I was very comfortable in black and white. Like if I knew what I was getting into, I was fine because then I could create a level of false security for myself that made me feel okay. And so to take my mask off meant I was living in the messy middle. I wasn't living all the way on the ends of the extremes. And so I was pretty, honestly, it felt completely out of control, which I did not like. And at the same time, I knew that I needed to experience a level of being out of control as I was learning new healthy coping mechanisms that weren't drinking, that weren't doing drugs, that weren't related to food issues or body image. And so it was very, very messy. I think one of the most beautiful moments for me that I could share with one of your listeners is a gal um, who was a friend of mine. We were new friends when I first moved to Los Angeles 15 years ago. And she called me and just said, hey, how are you doing? And I responded with the typical, I'm fine. Everything's great. How are you? And I did an immediate subject change and started asking her lots of questions about herself. And then we ended up getting off the phone. And about 15 minutes later, she showed up at my door, knocked on my door. And when I opened it, I just burst into tears and fell down on the ground. And she just sat down on the floor with me and started crying herself. It was as if you know, her, the level of empathy that she experienced with me, she could sense my pain and feel what I was going through. And it was a big step for me to have someone just show up for me. Um, the fact that she did that was, was a major breakthrough moment for me because I realized that I could be loved even in my mess and that I could be loved even when things weren't perfect and that I could be loved even when I knew I had a, quite a journey ahead of me. And she just gave me the affirmation that I needed to take the next step. And so after that moment, I began to share with her some of my story that I had gone through, that I was struggling with an eating disorder, that I had gone through a rape, that I didn't know how to be in reciprocal relationships with other people. And through that process of sharing and her sharing with me as well, was able to grow in friendship. And I think that's kind of the first step is figuring out, okay, who's safe enough? And it's going to be so scary no matter who it is, no matter if it's someone you've known for years, no matter if it's someone that you've laughed with, cried with. But if you've got things you need to share with them, it's going to feel terrifying. And my best advice is just to do it afraid. And on the other side of it is if there is rejection or there is abandonment or like that beautiful phrase you used, if it costs you connection, just know that it's worth it to find healing, that there will be other relationships, that there will be people who understand. And everyone I shared with didn't understand me. And some people did reject me. And some people, because of their own brokenness, were unable to be with me in mine. And I think you just have to let people go so that you can experience freedom and wholeness. But that first, the first time you share is messy, it's ugly, but just knowing that you're okay in the mess. It's okay to be out of control if it means, you know, getting to live free. 100%. So, I mean, I, I could sit, I could camp out on that topic all day long because I, I really think, you know, making the shift from living kind of hidden or, you know, with the mask on or just like, you know, trapped in shame and, and deciding to be fully, freely, 100% yourself. That is hard. That's not a transition that just comes easily. It's, it's, it's rewiring your habits and your way of being to live in a totally different format. And so it's not easy, but it's worth it. And so I really, um, enjoyed hearing your perspective there. So one thing that I know you're passionate about is justice, 
human trafficking, mass incarceration initiatives. I would love to talk. I mean, it's not like we're going light here. I would love to talk about that. <laughs> well, I did tell you that I, I'm not a girls night out kind of person. So we knew it was going to get heavy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so as I shared earlier with Treasures, that was kind of my first introduction as a young woman in my early 20s into the justice world and being able to, you know, at the time in 2002 or three, you know, we weren't talking about human trafficking. They, they were still just calling women, you know, by their jobs, by their roles, whether they were strippers or prostitutes or whatever it was. So human trafficking, especially domestic human trafficking, was not really a thing. And Harmony was kind of the first to start a nonprofit like that. And through that, I learned um, so much about the issue. I learned that 70% of women who are trafficked domestically are trafficked through the commercial sex industry. So that means on porn sets, that means on um, in brothels or massage parlors, that means in strip clubs. So that means 70% of people who are trafficked here in the United States happens through the clubs. Wow. Um, and so for me, that was like a real eye-opening experience because I knew these women. And then when you would hear stories about women who had gone through things, um, you know, when they were children or um, had begun the process of working in the sex industry between the ages of 12 and 14. I mean, it's just the stories are baffling. And so I think because of that, just developed a real heart. I already had a big heart for women. And then seeing firsthand Harmony as a survivor herself, the power that she lived with and the forgiveness and freedom that was in her life just helped me develop a passion for that. And I'm still a part of what we do at Treasures. We started Treasures New York City here with one of our local directors, and I'm still on the board of Treasures overall and just love being able to do that. And then with mass incarceration, that's a deep abiding passion of mine. I discovered so many racial inequities that are in our criminal justice system. And part of how I discovered that is through, again, my own life story. When I was growing up, I used to say things like, I just don't see color. And I know that, that that's a common phrase that people use. And I used it as well. But the truth is, like, I see color everywhere that I look. Like, I would never say that about a painting or a picture or a book cover. I mean, of course you see color. It's right there in front of you. So to, to deny someone's differences is also to sort of deny the image of God that they were created with. And it, and it gives everybody a free pass to not see what's really going on when yeah. it comes to racial justice and inequality. And I had a real awakening because in my past, this wild woman that I am, I've had seven warrants out for my arrest, typically for ridiculous things like, you know, not paying parking tickets. I mean, just, just being absolutely irresponsible, but seven warrants out for my arrest. And every time I got pulled over, I never, ever was taken to jail I never got in big trouble. I usually was let off with a warning. I could shed a couple of tears and, and they usually were genuine. I wasn't being fake. I was actually scared for my life, <laughs> but at the same time, I never, never got arrested. And then I became a prison chaplain about seven years ago in Los Angeles. And through that process, the only people I really had the privilege and honor of praying with in the jail were people who had been picked up on warrants, you know, very often single mothers who were women of color picked up because they didn't pay a parking ticket and now they're in jail concerned about what's going to happen with their daughter who's at home with, with the sitter or with their mother, praying for other people, you know, uh, who were pimps or prostitutes. So that's, you know, again, striking the area of my heart um, when it comes to, to anti-human, anti-human trafficking initiatives. But through that realized, man, no one's ever arrested me. And it had, it wasn't God's favor. Like I used to say, it wasn't like, you know, all favor ain't fair. God let me off this one. It just yeah. has so much grace for me. It was like, no, it's because I'm white that's letting me off the hook. And that realization really sent me on this journey of discovering what does it mean to live with equity? What does it mean to have racial justice? What does it mean for me 
to study the world that we live in, to really study our history, to begin to learn from men and women of color so that I can grow and have a fundamental understanding of who people really are so that I can see the image of God in every single person, that I can press past my biases, that I could press past my own implicit and explicit biases in order to really love and serve people the way God would want me to. That's been my journey in those two areas. Wow. So one thing that I would love for you to unpack a little bit more is, you know, I don't see color or I'm colorblind. And I think I heard this conversation recently and I've been having this conversation for years, it feels like, um, because I, I used to say that in college too. It feels like the nice thing to say as a, a privileged white person who's privileged inherently just because of the color of skin I was born with. Yes. But could you unpack why that might not be helpful? Absolutely. Well, it's not helpful for a couple of reasons. One, it just sort of, it sweeps over someone's identity. You know, I think that's the first reason it can be so hurtful and harmful is that it's just a sweeping statement. It's like, oh, I don't see color. And so you're skipping over how people are created, what they can bring to the world, the beautiful difference that God gave them that we, we need and want to experience the fullness of. I also think that saying I don't see color, you know, you already mentioned this just now, but it's a it's a privilege statement. It's like, well, I don't I don't actually have to see color. You know, the the world is built for people like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and our history shows that and tracks that. You know, there are real stats and real figures that that back that up. And so I think that that's one reason that it's not helpful. And then it just creates a disconnect. It's like, oh, okay, great. Well, if you don't see color, there's no way for you to ever really understand who I am. So it puts a barrier between me and another person. It puts a barrier between me and under and another person and finding understanding between us. It, it says, hey, I'm not really willing to listen to this part of you. I'm not really willing to understand the fullness of who you are. And I think that that's why the statement is so harmful. It's like somebody saying something random to me, like, oh, I just, I don't see that you're a woman. It's like, what? How can, <laughs> yeah. I'm clearly a woman. I think we need to acknowledge that and let's find some understanding in our differences. Like it's necessary for us to do that. But because we walk in so much fear when it comes to the topic of race and people are so scared to say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing, or to even share that they have biases or struggles or real issues that they face around the issue of race, whether you're white, black, you know, Asian, Indian, Native American, whatever it might be, um, people are very afraid to sort of unpack the issue. Um, But I think we need to have more dialogues and more safe spaces where we can talk about these things so that we can begin to understand how we are created and who we are. And we can experience the richness of culture and background and ethnicity that God gave us because our differences make us better. Like they are the defining part of us that, that whole, and it's also like, it's the glue that holds us together. Our differences do not have to divide us. And I'm very, very passionate about making sure that they unite us rather than divide us. I am, I am so with you. I feel like we could talk all day long about this. So one, one experience I had this year was I got to, I get the privilege of going to a racial reconciliation retreat that was just, you know, allowing me to come alongside my peers in the black, Hispanic, Asian, and white communities and where we all chose to link arms. And I remember sharing about how excited I was with a family member, not my parents, but a family member. And they were like, why are we still focusing on that? And it, it grieved me because I was like, only a privileged white person would say that. So, so how can we help 
because I think it's it's part of our jobs as leaders. You know, we tend to attract people who look like us. You know, yeah. you, you go to a church, you go to a business retreat, and the women in the audience mostly look like the women leading, whether that's a black woman leading or a white woman or an Asian woman leading. We tend to attract people who look like us or someone who's a few steps behind us probably walking a similar journey. How do we equip the, our tribe, who might be mostly white, to understand the importance of focusing on this as a white person, because I think it takes us linking arms with our minority group sisters and brothers yes. and helping and, and not making it about us because we don't want to be the people who step in and say, oh, aren't I so nice for caring about this? I hate that. Like, I hate it so much. It's awful. And so I, I was, you know, at that retreat and I was like, how can I help you and how can I serve you and how can I link arms with you without making it about me? How do we yeah. do that? And how do we help people understand that? Yeah, that's a really beautiful question. Well, I think uh, my personal journey has been this. It's to, um, I've really had to work. Like I talk so much you know, over the last 10 years of working in the justice field, like I've talked so much about loving my other and, and I preach about it and I talk about it and I write about it. And it's, it's a thing in my life. But a couple of years ago, I felt like the Holy spirit just really was like, Hey, you don't do this. Like you actually are not living this. And I realized that I, my other, um, sometimes has the same skin color as me, but just has very different experiences and backgrounds and different political beliefs or different religious beliefs or different interpretations of the Bible. And it's very difficult for me to step across that line, even though we look the same. And so I felt like the Holy Spirit really convicted me of how judgmental I was towards people who don't get it yet. Yes. Oh, that is my biggest struggle. (laughs) Yeah. And so I've really had to grow in that and, and begin to understand like, Hey, just as hard as I work to understand people who don't look like me, I also need to understand people who do look like me, but have different beliefs and different values, because how are we ever going to step across that line? And I realized also that I was making it more difficult for my friends who are women and men of color, because, you know, I'm not doing the work that I need to do with, with people who look like me. Like I wasn't willing to do that hard work. I was like, ah, no, they don't think like me. They don't talk like me. Forget it. I'm not doing it. Like, I'm just not going to do that. And I realized, man, I'm so judgmental. I'm doing the exact thing that I hate. And I've had to really step outside of my comfort zone and really trust God and begin to build relationships, like actual reciprocal relationships, which is what I preach about when I talk about loving the other is having people at your dinner table that, that don't think like you, people at your dinner table who don't look like you, people in your home, people in your day-to-day walk of life, like a, a beautiful mutual respect, a reciprocity that is necessary for us to find understanding. And I've begun to do that more in the last couple of years. Um, and it actually has really helped me. And I'm it's helped me not be such a polarizing person. I I still think I have a really long way to go, but if I could offer something to people with white skin, it would be that we need to have these dialogues because people are hurting. And if, if people are hurting and experiencing things like police brutality, or they're experiencing things that are happening in the news or issues around um, immigration, like the different things that folks are dealing with, we really do have to step into that hurt and step into that pain. Because if one person's hurting, if we have a sister who's down, we're all down, we're all hurting, we're all suffering. And so we have to begin to, to touch one another for real. And I love what you shared just about not centering it on ourselves. And that's one of my great pet peeves in the justice world and, and a pet peeve I have with the church. Cause I think sometimes we go into everything 
you know, as saviors and we go into everything thinking we have all the answers and we're here to help and we're here to fix these people and we're here to, you know, to save them. It's like, well, no, they, there is one savior and I'm not him. You know, my, my best bet is to go in recognizing that the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that we are all standing side by side, that nobody is inferior, nobody is superior to anybody else. Like we all are standing side by side one another and walking each other home to heaven. And that's our role. And so we're not better than anybody else, but it is our job to understand one another, to reach down and lift each other up, to have a fundamental understanding of the issues that are concerning other women in our lives. Like we have to whether they look like us or not, whether it makes sense to us or not, it's our responsibility to understand people, to love them truly, to see them the way that God sees them and to open our hearts to growth, to change, to true transformation. That's part of our journey. Yeah. And I think just even in, in something you said, it just kind of confirmed and convicted because, you know, I didn't know what to say to my family member. I didn't want to get in a I was just genuinely talking about a, a, a retreat. I was so honored to be able to go to, to be a part of the conversation. And I was so taken aback that they didn't see that as an issue or something to focus on, obviously, because they weren't able to step outside of their own shoes. But it's not helpful if I get angry and try to beat them over the head with my perspective. It would be much more helpful to really gather myself and explore the conversation in a level-headed manner in hopes that maybe they might be able to explore it from someone else's point of view, but also that it's, it isn't my job to change their mind. That's Holy Spirits, but I, I, I can be a part of the conversation and I can facilitate it without getting aggressive or mad. And, and those, those are the conversations that I can tend to get the most mad over. You know, another privileged white person who just can't step outside of the own experience they've had. And so, so that we can respectfully usher people into the conversation who might not understand. Yes, I so agree. And I think um, one of the things a friend said to me a couple years ago, one of my dear friends, a black woman, as I said, what can I do? Similar question you asked earlier. What can I do to be helpful right now? And she said, I need you to get your people. Like it's, it's actually not our job to educate everybody about all things race. And it's killing me having to do this. And I'm like, yes, you're right. And so I, I find myself now, like when little comments get made by family members or little comments get made in a certain setting, somebody says something that, you know, is racist frankly. And it might be kind. It, it might be said, I mean, if something racist can be kind, I don't really believe it can, but I've said in ignorance really, but it's, it's correcting those things in a kind way. Yeah. It's what you just said. It's really important that you don't share that in a meeting that you really need to look at that and where that comes from. Or if we're at the dinner table and something comes up with extended family, just having the guts to say like, it's not okay that you said that. It's stressful and it's hard, but it's worth it. And I think it requires, you know, how small is my bravery to confront a family member when I don't have to daily walk out injustices just because of how my, what color my skin tone is. And so it's, it's a small cost, but it's worth it. And I had to do the same thing over the dinner table this year. I said, you know, I would not allow someone to make a comment like that about you. So I don't think I can participate with you making a comment like that about someone else. Come on, Kelsey. And, so and it, it was hard and it was uncomfortable, 
But then that person apologized and it didn't happen again the rest of our time together. And usually it does. So we made some progress. Yes. So awesome. I, I mean, I just love getting to chat about this. Again, I could camp out here all day long. Um, I think it's <laughs> such an important conversation. And I think it's, it is our responsibility to rally our people because this, I think it does take all of us linking arms with one another, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, all, you know, all colors. I'm, I'm leaving someone out, but you know, to really see progress. And I think it's doing this together that that's going to make a difference. And so it's cool to talk about and to think through ways that we can actually be helpful. So you are pastoring a church in New York City. Tell us about what you're doing there. I know you're writing a book. I would love to hear about what you're doing currently. Yes. Well, my husband and I pastor at Liberty Church. Our beautiful church has eight churches across the nation, but we have five here in New York City, and my husband and I are at the Lower Manhattan one, and we love our people. Lower Manhattan is legit. <laughs> We're so thankful that we get the opportunity to be with such amazing human beings, and it's part of what we love about New York is the rich diversity, the human capital that, that is in our church and in our community is just out of this world. And we're so thankful to be able to, to rub shoulders with folks like this. And we, I am writing a book, which has been a lifelong dream for me. I'm so excited. It'll be released in the fall of 2019. And I can't wait. It's going to be about some of the issues that we talked about earlier, just being able to take your mask off and share the truth and then empowering other people to do the same. And I'm really excited about, about the opportunity that I have to do that. It's a 20 year dream and it just feels so surreal that I'm in New York city in Manhattan. Like I dreamed about as a little girl writing this book. Wow. <laughs> That's so cool. So where are you from in the, in the South? You know, I'm a Tennessee yeah. girl. This yeah. is not a Colorado accent. <laughs> yeah. Which is awesome. <laughs> yes. Well, North Carolina. So I'm, I'm your neighbor. <laughs> okay. And so Wow. So you moved to LA, then to New York City, and yes. that's quite a departure. Yes, it is. And so what's it like raising two sons in Manhattan, the very different childhood than North Carolina? <laughs> yes, it is. Oh my gosh. It's such a wild world. You know, for, for me, I always say the first six to nine months of moving to Manhattan, I literally felt like I was drowning. It was just so hard and, and I had to relearn everything. I didn't know where I, to get my groceries. I didn't know, you know, where I was going to do my laundry. I didn't know how to figure out to get myself to the train and then actually, mo you know, move around on the train. So it was, it was quite a, a difference, even from Los Angeles. And then I feel like now I've got a killer doggy paddle. Like I'm absolutely not swimming, but I am treading water like you would not believe. <laughs> that is awesome. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> Yeah. So we, and raising kids here, I, I actually really do like that part. There's challenges for sure. When I'm standing in the rain, trying to figure out how to get to the train without getting two kids soaked. Um, but I do love for their development. I have little kids. So my son is one and I have another one who's almost four. Um, so they're little, but the developmental opportunities that they have are just so amazing. Like we're, you know, six blocks from central park, they get to run around and play they're stimulated all the time. They get to be introduced to people of all kinds of walks of life, which I also really enjoy and value. My mom made sure to do that for us, to expose us to different kinds of people. And I really value being able to do that with my children. And, and I love that they just get to be here in this city. I think it's a really fun opportunity for kids. It's not always easy for us as parents to be frank and honest, but at the same time, I have really seen my children thrive here. They're not struggling like their parents. <laughs> wow. 
I mean, I think that's so cool. And in a, a, a dr- one of my many dreams as well. So I think that is, is really cool. So, you know, before we go, I want you to tell our listeners where they can find you. I know you have a U version Bible study, like where can they connect with you and what's, you know, one piece of advice you'd leave with a listener, maybe who is looking to get involved in their community with social justice efforts or really struggling to, you know, take that mask off and find some people who will rally around them in their vulnerability. So awesome. Okay, well, you can find me in a couple of places. I have a blog, ashabercrombie.org, and it's called Old Fashioned Truth Telling. And then um, you can find me on social media, same thing, ashabercrombie, either on Instagram, Twitter, you can find me on Facebook. And then, yes, I have a U version called Finding God in the Hard Places. So if you feel stuck in a hard place, I would love to journey with you as you figure out how to get out of that. Um, it's, it's honest and hopefully we'll give you some thought provoking ways to connect with God and explore where you are in your faith. And then I think if I had one piece of advice for you, it would just be to be brave. And I know that sounds so simple and so basic and so cliche, but whether you are looking to get involved in a social justice initiative, maybe there's a a burning passion in you for youth, or there's a burning passion in you for mass incarceration, or a burning passion in you for education or um, anti-human trafficking, whatever the issue is, be brave. Do the next thing that is in front of you to do. That might be researching a place that you can get involved. It might be connecting with a young woman at the park because she's there with her children all the time and you see her. Maybe it's not, you know, starting a big nonprofit, but it's just being at the park, being present, connecting with someone. Be brave and figure out what that is. And then the same thing in taking your mask off. Be brave. Just do it. Find someone that you feel safe enough to talk to and set up a place that feels comfortable to you and just let them know, I just need to share some things with you, please. I may not be as graceful in sharing them because I've never done this before. And I really hope you'll give me grace on the other side, but be brave and let me share. So I think that that's, that's my advice. And again, I know it's very simple, but just do it, do it afraid you can do hard things. That's how God built you. You are created in the image of God and you can do hard things. So be brave, take that mask off and risk. I love it. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. This conversation, you'll have to come back because this could go on for days. And so I am so thankful that you've gotten to join me here, that my listeners have gotten to meet you and we'll be keeping up with one another. I can't wait. Kelsey, thank you so much. And um, I love your tribe already. Look forward to getting to know you more. Hey, don't go yet. I would love it if you go over to iTunes right now and leave a review. I love hearing your feedback and it really makes a difference in getting the Radiant Podcast name out there. And while you're at it, why don't you subscribe and then share this episode on Facebook or Instagram or wherever your social media platform is of choice. Lastly, I'd love to keep up with each other. Come find me on Instagram at Kels Chapman and let's get to know each other. your most important documents, videos, and photos in the cloud. With a Microsoft 365 subscription, you get a full terabyte of secure OneDrive storage that you can access across all your devices. As part of your subscription, you get the added benefit of additional OneDrive personal vault storage. Using a second set of identity verification, this gives you an extra layer of protection for your most important and private files. Buy now at Microsoft365.com slash memories. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. Let's say you make it to the top. What's next? Relish in the glory of your accomplishments? Okay, sure. 
for a minute, but then you move forward. Take the 2021 Escalade. Cadillac's newest arrival is more than just a celebration of iconic luxury. It's the most technologically advanced Escalade ever because arriving is just the beginning. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.